In a bitter and humiliating end to the 20-year U.S. occupation, the government of Afghanistan has collapsed without a fight in the face of a lightning offensive by the Taliban following the announcement that U.S. forces were leaving Afghanistan. Joe Biden went on national television yesterday to defend his decision to end the war. Biden acknowledged, in essence, that the U.S. had been defeated and retaining military forces in Afghanistan would never change the outcome. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's August 17th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarek, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. As I mentioned in the introduction, President Biden took to national TV yesterday, and we're going to start the show here today with a clip from his appearance. We will conclude our military withdrawal. We'll end America's longest war after 20 long years of bloodshed. The events we're seeing now are sadly proof that no amount of military force would ever deliver a stable, united, secure Afghanistan, as known in history as the graveyard of empires. What's happening now could just as easily happen five years ago or 15 years in the future. You have to be honest. Our mission in Afghanistan has taken many missteps, made many missteps over the past two decades. I'm now the fourth American president to preside over war in Afghanistan, two Democrats and two Republicans. I will not pass this responsibly on, responsibility on to a fifth president. I will not mislead the American people by claiming that just a little more time in Afghanistan will make all the difference nor will I shrink from my share of responsibility for where we are today and how we must move forward from here. I am president of the United States of America, and the buck stops with me. Nicole, Biden's speech, I think, when we think about it as designed for domestic consumption and to answer the many, many, many critics of the Biden administration because of the chaotic way that the war has come to an end the way the Taliban has quickly seized the government, the collapse of the old government. Biden went on TV to basically answer his critics. They're from the Democratic Party. They're from the Republican Party. Bipartisan criticism of Biden and especially the media. The media seems like rabid pro-war. Well, they are rabid pro-war forces who have lied about Afghanistan the way they lied about Iraq. They lied about Yemen. They lie about Palestine. 
they're holding Biden's feet to the fire because as he acknowledges that the U.S. is basically defeated, as he basically tells the truth, and because it's ugly on the ground, they're going after Biden as if only the acknowledgement of the defeat had been somehow very wonderful, if it had all ended on a wonderful note as the U.S. was defeated. Well, when governments are defeated at war, it's usually not a very pretty ending. So in one sense, Biden was actually telling the truth and he took responsibility for ending the war. There were other parts of the speech, Nicole, several other parts that were clearly not telling the truth. I want to play another clip where he talked about why the U.S. actually went to war in Afghanistan in the beginning and how the U.S. had actually succeeded and accomplished its mission and that the war or the continuation of the war now was no longer necessary. Let's listen to this part of Biden's speech. We went to Afghanistan almost 20 years ago with clear goals. Get those who attacked us on September 11, 2001, and make sure al-Qaeda could not use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack us again. We did that. We severely degraded al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. We never gave up the hunt for Osama bin Laden, and we got him. That was a decade ago. Our mission in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation-building. It was never supposed to be creating a unified, centralized democracy. Our only vital national interest in Afghanistan remains today what it has always been, preventing a terrorist attack on America's homeland. Now, that part is a lie. That part of Joe Biden's speech is completely a lie. The triggering event here was, of course, the September 11th attacks, the terrorist attacks where hijackers hijacked airplanes, drove them into both towers of the World Trade Center, destroyed those two towers, and also were able to take one of the planes directly into the west side of the Pentagon. And the fact of the matter is, there were no Afghans on that plane or any of those planes. There were no Afghans on any of those planes. 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi citizens. And even today, the Biden administration is not fully releasing the government reports about the role of the Saudi government or Saudi officials in the attack. There are still parts of that commission report, the 9 11 commission report, that are under wraps. But the fact of the matter is that the United States, having been attacked by al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, had been given guest status in Afghanistan, that that provided a pretext for the Bush administration to do what the neocons who dominated the Bush administration wanted to do, which was to go to war against Iraq, against Syria, against Libya, against the resistance forces in Lebanon, and ultimately against the great prize, which was Iran. And they were going to use the September 11th attacks as a pretext under the banner of the war on terror to begin this new aggressive foreign policy where they intended to destroy all of the governments, the independent governments of the Middle East, whose existence was due to their connection to the anti-colonial project following World War II. That was the neocon agenda. But in order to invade Iraq, with Osama bin Laden having been a guest in Afghanistan, they needed to attack Afghanistan to check that box. You couldn't really start the war in Iraq without having done something militarily 
against the country that had given guest status to Osama bin Laden. At the time, and as we talked about with Mike Preisner last week in our segment called The Real Story, the Taliban were prepared to surrender Osama bin Laden for a trial in a third country, in a Muslim country, and they asked the United States to provide evidence or information showing that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda were responsible for the September 11th attacks, to which George W. Bush said, we don't negotiate with terrorists, and then the U.S. launched the invasion. But it was never uh, designed as the main target. In fact, the United States did not pursue Osama bin Laden. They let him escape shortly thereafter. The Taliban were dispersed in about three or four days, and immediately, and as we know from the historical record, the Bush administration turned its attention to begin preparations for the real first prize, which was to invade Iraq. So Walter, Nicole, Esther, Biden had parts of his speech yesterday, which were truthful. The part that he acknowledges the U.S. cannot win. It's been defeated. That part is true. He's being attacked for having taken responsibility for it and implementing the withdrawal. But the other parts of his speech included a lot of BS. Yeah, well, I mean, I think all of the different elements of the elite, or at least the section of the elite that's involved in war making, so, you know, the Pentagon brass, the State Department officials, foreign policy officials, media elites, they're all kind of engaged in a blame game with one another over the question of who lost Afghanistan. I mean, that's actually the formulation that's being used in some media outlets, a reference to this arrogant colonial type question that they asked about China after the Chinese Revolution. So, yeah, I mean, Biden is saying, look, well, it was Donald Trump who made a deal with the Taliban before I came into office, or it was, you know, Obama's idea was to do the surge, and I was against the surge. But then other elements of the elite, especially a ton of people in the media, are essentially adopting the position that the United States should have stayed forever, because, of course, that's the only alternative, because I agree with you, Brian, the inevitable outcome of the withdrawal of U.S. troops, or even just the impending withdrawal of U.S. troops, the political dynamic that that creates was something that the Afghan government installed by the U.S. invasion could never have measured up to. But yeah, I mean, everybody wants to avoid blame. There could be long-term uh, divisions that form on this basis because this is so humiliating for the image, the prestige of U.S. power and the ability to project power all around the world. But yeah, I mean, I think there's just a lot of disgusting positions being taken. You know, Biden's mythology of the war, this fairy tale that he told about why the war began. And then all of these warmongering pundits in the media echoed by tons of politicians, uh, primarily Republicans, but also Democrats, primarily conservatives, but also lots of so-called liberals in foreign policy world, that the war should have just gone on forever in the name of human rights or democracy or women's rights or whatever hypocritical cause they decide, whatever cause they decide to hypocritically support this week. Well, and I was listening to pundits after the speech yesterday who, you know, as you all have been saying, they were saying things like, well, if we're not in the country, if, you know, in the speech, Biden talked about how we'll just do counterterrorism work from outside the country. And the pundits were saying, well, if we're not in the country, there's no way we're going to be able to do counterterrorism work. To your point, Walter, the logical outcome of that argument is we should stay in Afghanistan forever. And that's not only not a good idea, it's not only an imperialist war, it's also risking the lives of Americans who are over there and risking the lives of Afghans who are living in their own country. I mean, it's just clearly a terrible idea. 
And the fact that, you know, the media was so anti-Trump for so long and then applauded Trump when he bombed Syria. That's when he first became presidential. But, you know, when Biden starts to end a war or even really just finishes the bit of ending a war, you know, he actually gets trashed. So much of the punditry I heard afterward was about imagery and the fact that there was such chaos at the airport and there were scenes that they didn't want repeated. Like Biden had said, well, this will not be a repeat of what Saigon looked like right at the end of the Vietnam War. But it was as if everything in the war boiled down to these last few hours and days as opposed to focusing on the the real war crime of the whole war effort. And I heard the CNN correspondent there, Clarissa Ward, talk about how Biden made a promise that the U.S. embassy wouldn't close, that the Biden administration made the promise that it would not close, and that the fact that it was closing was another kind of blow to our image. Whereas the embassies for Russia and China, for example, are not closing. So it's not as if these things weren't known before a week ago. And to have all these pundits get on the air and act like the last few hours of the war are all that matters is just ridiculous. Yeah, let's dissect two different parts to this story. This is very dramatic. And obviously, Biden is being trashed because... Biden and his Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, had said to everyone over and over again, the things that we see now happening in the last few days would not happen. They were very reassuring. They were very confident that you know the government would not fall. This wouldn't be like Saigon again in 1975 with the humiliation of U.S. and U.S.-backed forces having to be on top of the roof of the U.S. embassy and climbing onto the helicopters to barely escape the ongoing, oncoming offensive of the of the National Liberation Front in the North Vietnamese Army. It wasn't going to be like that. So that's one part of the story, like how Biden and Blinken presented it and how they turned out to be so wrong. And that's what their critics are picking up on, that this was a debacle because of the way it was mismanaged as if ending a war was going to be like a walk through the park or something. And then there's the other and underlying issue, which is, does the U.S. actually acknowledge its defeat and leave? So yeah, let's play some of the misstatements, the obvious misstatements from Biden and Blinken. Let's start first with Biden. I think this was about a month ago where he was making the comparison between the fall of Saigon, as it's put, we would call it the liberation of what became Ho Chi Minh City and what was about to happen in Kabul and in Afghanistan. So let's listen. Yeah, this is July 8th of Biden speaking. The Taliban is not the, South, the North Vietnamese army. They're not, they're not remotely comparable in terms of capability. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of an embassy in the, of the United States from Afghanistan. Well, you know, it wasn't the roof. It was the helicopter pad next to the U.S. embassy in Kabul, Walter. So obviously, Biden brought that upon himself. I think we have a clip from Anthony Blinken. He's saying basically the same thing. Do we have that, Nicole? Yep. This is from July 7th of Blinken. I don't think that uh, the fact that our forces are, are withdrawing 
one, we're not withdrawing. We're staying. Uh, the embassy is staying. Our programs are staying. We're working to make sure that other partners stay. We're building all of that up. And uh, whatever happens in Afghanistan, if there is a significant deterioration uh, in security, um, that could well happen. We've discussed this uh, before. Um, I don't think it's going to be something that happens from a Friday to a Monday. Wow, what a choice of words. It was a Friday to a Monday. Walter, it happened on Sunday. It's so incredible. I mean, one of the fastest takeovers, I mean, it's got to be one of the fastest takeovers of a country by an insurgent movement ever. I mean, they went from controlling zero provincial capitals, right, from controlling zero major urban areas in the country to nine days later controlling every single major urban area in the country. I mean, so fast. And, you know, the Taliban did that without having an air force, without having much advanced weaponry other than what they ended up capturing from retreating U.S. and U.S.-backed forces. Yeah, I mean, it happened so fast. And even though the ultimate outcome was probably not surprising at all to any of the military planners, I do think that the speed of it really was the fact that it happened in a week and a half, less than a week and a half. And it happened because the Afghan National Army uh, did not fight because the political situation I mean, it was clear that the Afghan government was going to fall one way or another. And do you really want to be the person to sacrifice your life for a losing cause just so that the U.S. can have a more graceful, less politically embarrassing exit or the elites who run the country can get their affairs in order before they flee and leave everybody behind? Who would want to sacrifice their life for that? Well, there's two important points here. One is the Taliban for the past 18 months have been making deals with local commanders or local warlords in different parts of the country who constituted the core of the Afghan government or pro-government militias. They were a brutal force. People in the villages didn't like them. They were corrupt. They were thieves. And they were making deals with the Taliban, and they were very prepared to make those deals. And that happened. The other thing is they didn't want to fight for the national government because the national government are a bunch of crooks and thieves and warlords themselves. I mean, they're not that different from who constituted the Taliban, except perhaps even more corrupt. So on the basis of that, this government of and an army of 300,000 people paid for by the United States, the moment the United States announced its leaving, they decided they weren't going to fight which meant the only reason they were fighting was because they were being paid by the Americans and because the American military presence was the core infrastructure. So we're confronted here with two choices, really two choices. When you understand that this military was going to crash and dissolve and the government was going to crash and dissolve the moment the U.S. left, the two choices are that the United States would literally stay forever occupying the country in a losing war, or the U.S. would exit. And if the U.S. were to exit, which is what Biden decided to do, and what Trump had decided to do, and what the Pentagon had decided to do, when you're going to exit, your enemies are going to take over. And as a consequence, whoever leaves is going to be held responsible. You know, when Nixon came into office in 1969, Nixon and Kissinger knew, and we know this from the Pentagon Papers, they knew that the war was lost, but they didn't want to take responsibility for the war because they didn't want to be, you know, they didn't want to look like losers. They didn't want to have responsibility for it. And so they maintained the war for another four years, and another 30,000 U.S. soldiers died. Another 100,000 were wounded. 
And another million Vietnamese died so the politicians wouldn't get the bad press that Joe Biden today is getting. This is the sort of highly irresponsible nature of U.S. politics where these politicians send people to war to shoot and be shot at by people they don't know, who speak a language they don't understand, who come from a culture they don't have the slightest idea about. And then when they lose, which the U.S. has lost again in another war thousands of miles away, the politicians generally prefer to have other people's children fight and die and kill and be killed rather than saying it's a lost cause. What I would add to that, Brian, is that the just this kind of um, war hawkish fervor is, I guess, typified by Senator Ted Cruz, who even during the coverage on Monday, criticized the CNN correspondent Clarissa Ward for staying in Afghanistan. And people were criticizing her because she wore the traditional dress, not covering her face, but she covered her head and her body to go out and do interviews because she was showing some respect to the Taliban and their new rules, you know, and she was able to get them on camera. She was able to get them to talk about the conditions of women under Taliban rule. And she said, well, will women be able to go out like this and continue school and continue work? And one of the leaders said, well, not like you, they'll have to have their faces covered. So she got some interesting and valuable information rather than just this hysteria. But the fact that Ted Cruz could go to the media and criticize her for staying there and not leaving immediately just typifies this type of hysteria and just war hawkishness and just imbecilic coverage and statements now. Yeah, that's important. And she, like, as we said, and she's very hawkish. I mean, she sounds like she really wanted the U.S. to continue fighting, occupying Afghanistan forever. Right. I want to go over some facts. And I think facts here, especially in the face of hysterical media coverage, might be kind of important. Why did the Taliban not conquer all of Afghanistan last year or the year before that. When you hear the next piece of information, just remember that Afghanistan is a country of 38 million people, about one-tenth the population size of the United States. In 2019, the United States Air Force dropped 7,423 bombs and missiles on people in Afghanistan. The year before that, in 2018, the U.S. dropped 7,362 bombs on people in Afghanistan. In 2010 and 11, during the Obama surge, the U.S. and NATO aircraft dropped 5,100 bombs in 2010 and 5,411 bombs in 2011. Now, the U.S. military only started reporting how many bombs it dropped each year in Afghanistan in 2006. So for the first five years, there were no reports about how many bombs were dropped. But just in the last two years, 2019 and 2018, the U.S. dropped 15,000 bombs and missiles. Now, everybody should think about that. Once the Biden administration announced that the U.S. was leaving and the bombing of Taliban positions or Afghan positions was going to end, then the Taliban were able to mount the successful offensive, meaning the only thing stopping 
the Taliban from taking the provincial capitals before was this massive bombing campaign, which euphemistically is referred to in the US media as near air support. No, it's called dropping bombs on people in Afghanistan. Dropping bombs on people in Afghanistan. So if the only way the US could hold off the Taliban was by dropping 15,000 bombs and missiles on people in Afghanistan in a two-year period, and that was the future, I just ask everybody who says right now that they care so much about the plight of Afghan girls and women in particular, is it okay with you that in order to maintain the US military presence in the government of Afghanistan, that the US Pentagon could drop 15,000 bombs in a two-year period on these people? According to the Watson Institute International and Public Affairs at Brown University, there were 71,000 civilians who have been killed directly. I'm not talking about people who died from disease or because they couldn't get medicine or clean water, directly killed by these bombs and missiles or bullets, 71,000 civilians, including a huge number of children. 240,000 people in Afghanistan have been killed. And these Brown University statistics are very conservative. They don't want to be accused of hyperbole. In 2017, during the Trump administration, the Trump White House relaxed the rules for engagement of airstrikes in Afghanistan, which resulted in a massive increase in civilian casualties. Now, when you think about those numbers, that bombing. And, and just think about it in the United States. Would it be okay with people in the United States to have a foreign country come and drop 7,500 bombs and missiles in this country? Would that be possibly acceptable? That's what it would mean to keep this war going. Also, let's talk about the price tag for the war. Here's from Newsweek, again, using the Costs of War Project at Brown University. As of April, the United States has spent $2.261 trillion on the war in Afghanistan, more than $2.2 trillion. If you talk about the additional costs of medical care and disability benefits for U.S. veterans from the Afghan war, Linda Bilms, a professor at Harvard University's Kennedy School, estimates that that number will be about $2.5 trillion. So combined, the cost of this 20-year-long war are $5 trillion. So when people are saying, look, we have to care about what comes next with the Taliban in power, as odious and as right-wing as the Taliban are, when you have a country that's being bombed like this every day, every day, and when you have Afghan soldiers, you know, Biden in a racist way said, the soldiers weren't fighting. Well, the high command wasn't prepared to fight and they weren't prepared to die for the high command. But the number of Afghan soldiers who have been dying each day averages about 40 people each day for the past four or five years. I mean, this is a huge number of Afghan lives being lost. And so I ask all of these imperialist apologists in the media who now are you know, demanding that the U.S. continue the military occupation on the pretext of helping girls and women and their rights, are they okay with this? Are they okay with dropping 7,000 bombs each year on Afghanistan? And finally, the only reason the Taliban came to power is that when the socialist government came 
into office in 1978 as a result of the Saar revolution in Afghanistan. And because it was a socialist government, the CIA went to war against that government. And what was that government guilty of? That government was guilty of upsetting old social relations in Afghanistan, meaning allowing girls to go to school, meaning having land reform that would take away some of the landed property of the feudal aristocrats who made up the bulk of the Mujahideen. And of course, the most damaging part, the biggest crime of that government was that it was socialist and aligned with the Soviet Union. So the CIA went to war against it. The only reason these reactionary governments came into Afghanistan later that deprived girls and women of their rights was because the U.S. absolutely did not care about the rights of girls and women when it destroyed a government, the socialist government in Afghanistan, or worked for 10 years in the largest, up until that point, the largest CIA covert operation ever to undermine that government. Anyway, this is part of the historical context. And by the way, I think, Walter, we have that quote from Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was the main cheerleader for the U.S. war against the socialist government in 1978 and 79. And then I think we have an audio clip of him speaking to the, at that time, what were considered to be heroic Mujahideen led by Osama bin Laden, waging war against the socialist government in Afghanistan and their Soviet allies. Yeah, that's right, Brian. Let me just read an exchange that Zbigniew Brzezinski, you know, one of the architects of the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan in the 1970s and 80s that installed the forces that would become the Taliban. This is what he said when he was interviewed in the 1990s by a French newspaper. So the journalist asks, when the Soviets justified their intervention by asserting that they intended to fight against the secret involvement of the United States in Afghanistan, people didn't believe them. However, there was a basis of truth. You don't regret anything today. And Brzezinski says, regret what? That secret operation was an excellent idea. It had the effect of drawing the Russians into the Afghan trap, and you want me to regret it? The day the Soviets officially crossed the border, I wrote to President Carter, we now have the opportunity of giving to the USSR its Vietnam War. The journalist asks, and neither do you regret having supported the Islamic fundamentalism, having given arms and advice to future terrorists? And Brzezinski says, what is more important in the history of the world, the Taliban or the collapse of the Soviet empire, some stirred up Muslims or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War? That's what Brzezinski actually says. I mean, he's bragging about this to this French journalist. And it goes to illustrate, you know, the fundamental point you're making, Brian, that that the only thing that the U.S. empire cares about is its own power. The political orientation of the groups and governments that it backs is not particularly important. In fact, it's not important at all. They can be religious or secular. They could be liberals. They could be fascists. It doesn't matter. As long as they're willing to do the bidding of U.S. imperialism, then the United States will back them. And that included these ultra right-wing religious fundamentalists that wanted to fight against the socialist government of Afghanistan. The formal name of that was the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, because that government was committed to all of those progressive social gains, the transformation of Afghan society, and it was part of the socialist camp of the world. It was an ally of the Soviet Union, and the main goal of U.S. empire, the main threat to the power of U.S. empire 
was the global socialist movement, the global communist movement. And so they were willing to ally with anybody, no matter how odious and horrific their politics are. And that remains the case today. I mean, the government of Saudi Arabia has the same politics as the Taliban. I mean, it's the same fundamental political ideology. The rebels that the United States is backing in Syria has fundamentally the same ideology as the Taliban. That's not actually relevant at all to the decision making, the actual decision making of the U.S. military and foreign policy establishment. You know, and Walter, not only that, but the U.S. government under what some consider the most liberal president that we've had, U.S. President Jimmy Carter, supported the Mujahideen I have a clip here of the same guy, Brzezinski. He was the U.S. National Security Advisor under Carter, Zibnu Brzezinski. And he's speaking to the Mujahideen at the Afghan-Pakistan border in 1979. We know of their deep belief in God. And we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. All right, so these are the forces organized by and partly financed by Osama bin Laden. They're at war against the socialist government in Afghanistan and their main beef with the Afghan government is not only that it's socialist and thus, quote, godless, but that there was a priority of the socialist government to allow girls in the countryside to go to school. In other words, to have an education. I mean, Kabul was something different, but outside of Kabul, the feudalists, the religious forces who were aligned with the feudal patriarchal village ruling class denied girls and women basic fundamental rights. So the socialist government sent teachers to the countryside and insisted that girls be allowed to read and write, to be brought to school. And so many of the socialist teachers were assassinated by the so-called Mujahideen, again, led by Osama bin Laden. And the U.S. government, Zbigniew Brzezinski, National Security Advisor for Jimmy Carter, right there helping to organize this whole event. We have another clip Dan Rather, who is a liberal within the context of the U.S. mass media, he's speaking on 60 Minutes on CBS. Let's listen to Dan Rather. This is a 1980 episode of 60 Minutes called Inside Afghanistan, where Dan Rather went. Let's listen. We were smuggled into Afghanistan by a young Mujahideen. Mujahideen, the Muslim word for freedom fighter or fighter in a holy war. In this case, as the Mujahideen see it, a holy war against the Soviets. A war, they say, that if they get weapons from us or anyone else in the free world, they will win. Right. So might be a little mind blowing for people now, you know, 40 years later to understand that the U.S. media, which is insisting that the U.S. go to war or stay at war in order to help girls and the rights of girls and women in Afghanistan against the Taliban, the same media was championing the same milieu from which the same reactionary force, the Taliban, was brought into existence. Again, it doesn't matter, as Walter said, what the form of government is to imperialism. They don't care about that. It matters to the 
to the women and the girls and the working class and the people of Afghanistan, whether they're living under Taliban rule and what kind of rule that looks like, it matters to them a great deal. But U.S. imperialism is not making any of its calculations based on some sort of tender spot for the rights of girls or women or anyone. It's purely cold-hearted calculations. And the calculation to leave Afghanistan is 100% based on the fact that the U.S. has been defeated. As the Taliban said to one of the interviewers a while ago, you have all the clocks, but we have all the time. Meaning the Taliban were rooted in Afghan society, in villages. People were upset with the corrupt government in Kabul. They were upset with living under occupation. They were upset with living under an occupation that dropped 7,500 bombs on their villages. They were upset. And so even if they disagreed with the Taliban, they could be organized. And the Taliban, you know, they weren't going anywhere. The U.S. soldier, the U.S. Marine, that person wants to come home to their family after their deployment. Well, the Taliban fighters, the resistance fighters are home. They're not going anywhere. And as Matthew Ho said, and he was our friend from, who resigned from the State Department in 2010 because he opposed Obama's surge. I mean, Joe Biden said he opposed the surge, but he didn't resign from being vice president. But Matthew Ho did resign from the State Department as a principled opponent of the surge. And his argument was the catalyst for the armed struggle in Afghanistan was the presence of foreign occupation forces, that they themselves were you know, fanning the flames of the insurgency because Afghans, like people everywhere, just don't want to live under foreign occupation. And, you know, an extension from that very important point, I think, is that it's also not doing any favors to Afghans who are fighting for equal rights for women or Afghans who are fighting for the empowerment of farmers in the countryside or Afghans who are fighting for the rights of workers in the cities to have their cause, to have their just struggle against very viciously reactionary right-wing forces in their country and in the ruling class of their country for their cause to be eternally tied to a foreign occupation. I mean, people are just fooling themselves if they think that that is a way that Afghan society could be fundamentally transformed because the U.S. occupation says so, because this brutal occupying army that's been here for 20 years and is responsible for such horrific civilian casualties who bombs hospitals and schools. I mean, tying the cause, the fight, the struggle for justice and equality of the people in Afghanistan to this foreign occupation is not doing anybody any favors. Before we go to our next story, I want to just finish with this one last thought about Biden's speech and have one of you also give your comments. Did you notice that Biden made the point that rather than participate in an endless war that the U.S. couldn't win, it would be better to focus on the U.S. real challenges, and he means China and Russia, meaning Biden is not leaving Afghanistan in order to have an era of peace, but to go on to the next war or the next confrontation. Absolutely. And he also mentioned that the United States would be involved in other areas they considered rampant with terrorists. And he mentioned Africa, you know, he mentioned Syria. So there's a stated need by the administration, by the military industrial complex in this country to pivot toward China 
and Asia, but they still have their feet firmly planted in the Middle East. And when you hear his comments that I heard specifically involving Africa and Syria, you can see that they are still intent on bombing other countries in the Middle East. Let's go on to another story. Another major earthquake in Haiti, the last huge earthquake. Not so many people were killed, but also, Nicole, we saw the intervention of foreign forces, especially the non-governmental organization complex, that basically organizations that are motivated by money and are not Haitian, basically supplanting the Haitian state or trying to Anyway, let's talk about this recent earthquake, 7.2. What's going on? Yeah, Brian, it was a 7.2 magnitude earthquake. It hit Saturday morning, and the last count, it's killed at least 1,297 people, so 1,300 people, and it's injured thousands and thousands more. It hit near Lekai, about 125 kilometers or 80 miles west of Port-au-Prince, which is the capital and which is where the majority of the damage happened in 2010. The hospital in Lekai is running out of painkillers, analgesics, steel pins to mend fractures. Patients are laying on the hospital's veranda and in the yard with bedsheets held up by sticks to just try to block some of the beating sun. More than 7,000 homes were destroyed so far that they're counting, and nearly 5,000 additional homes were damaged. And that means about 30,000 families right now are homeless in that region of Haiti. Hospitals, schools, offices, churches, you know, the kind of central institutions of the region have also been destroyed or really badly damaged, meaning that there's not very many options for people. So that's what's been going on. But, you know, it's not just the fact that they've had this earthquake just this past weekend. You know, obviously there was already incredible poverty and then the resulting gang violence that is preventing aid from getting in now, but was already making conditions really bad. There's already still so much work to do and to, that has been needed to be done to repair and rebuild from the 2010 earthquake. And what I kept thinking when I was you know, looking more into what happened in Haiti this weekend, I just kept thinking about Cuba because Cuba is you know, an island nation right next door to Haiti. And how many horrendous hurricanes and natural disasters that they're able to withstand. And it just becomes so clear that the conditions from the super oppression and neocolonialism that the Haitian people have been left in really created these mega disasters. I mean, any kind of earthquake or hurricane is always going to be, you know, something that you're going to have to deal with, something that's going to be tough, something that's going to be challenging. But 2010 and the earthquake just this past weekend have become these huge mega disasters. They've had imperialist meddling for centuries. You know, the Haitian people don't have right now the strong and planned societies that they themselves had fought for in so many instances. And I think, too, of, you know, the Haitian Revolution was in some ways the first of its kind. It's what scared the U.S. slaveholders, you know, that the enslaved people in the U.S. would rise up like they did in Haiti. The Haitian people have fought back so hard and so strong. And so, you know, it's just so clear with 11 years to make repairs since the last earthquake, the government is just not acting in the best interests of its people. And the long colonial legacy and super oppression have made these conditions just so truly horrendous. So, that's what's happening right now. And of course, this is all on top of the assassination of President Jovenel Moise on July 7th. So just a little bit over a month ago, and it's still, you know, very politically unstable situation. So definitely a really bad situation right now. Okay, we're going to keep following Haiti. We'll come back to it again next week. Esther, the 
census happens every 10 years. We're going to analyze that census. It's extremely interesting, the demographic shifts in the United States. But of course, the census is used for redistricting for congressional seats and other political districts. Anyway, what's going on with the redistricting bill in Congress? Right. So in addition to what was expected, an increase in the black and brown populations and a decrease in the white population for the first time in this country's history, political analysts have long stated, as you said, that the new figures would launch a new round of redistricting redistricting fights that the state Republicans are poised to fight to disempower some of these same black and brown communities that are growing. And also disempowered the Democratic Party in general, like for the next decade until the next census. So a couple of weeks ago, we all discussed, you know, in our editorial meeting, a story in Midday Poster, which pointed out that Democrats, by not passing their own voting rights and election law, the For the People Act, that they are not only not protecting their own voters at the ballot box, they're already allowing Republicans to redraw district maps in order to marginalize Democratic voters and seize control of the House of Representatives. Pointing out that 31 states in which state legislatures draw these districts are Republican controlled. And if no reform is passed, the GOP is planning to use the process to disempower these voters. So, Congress, we know, has gone on vacation without passing the For the People Act, and this redistricting process is starting around the country. I've been looking at articles from Wisconsin to North Carolina, and, you know, Republicans in these areas are already ramping up this process. So that piece in the Daily Poster written by Walter Bragman said, quote, the last time districts were redrawn, the GOP planned ahead and invested heavily in state races to solidify control of state legislatures. They then weaponized the map drawing process, crafting districts that heavily favored the GOP. The result Republican majorities that were able to withstand Democratic wave elections. The GOP held the House until 2018, dooming the Obama administration's agenda. Republicans have held a majority of state governments ever since. Then it goes on to say, thanks to better map drawing technologies and recent Supreme Court decisions that cleared the way for continued partisan redistricting, experts say the current round of gerrymandering is likely to be far more extreme. Coverage of Representative Ronnie Jackson, Republican of Texas, saying that he admitted to a conference of religious conservatives that the GOP plan to gerrymander control of the House. Quote, we have redistricting coming up and Republicans control most of that process in most of the states around the country, Jackson said. That alone should get us the majority back, end quote. So anyway, redistricting is the really important process that we'll keep watching. So in addition to voter suppression laws being passed around the country and the failure of the Democratic-controlled Congress to pass their own voting rights and election legislation. Nicole, let's turn uh, quickly because time is going fast. Very, very important court ruling on the issue of the extension of the eviction moratorium, six point. We said earlier 6.3 million families, but it's really 6.8 million families are due to be evicted without the moratorium extension. Cori Bush started her sleep-in at the Capitol. Housing groups around the country started mobilizing. Biden was compelled to take action. 
Some people expected immediately that this extension would come back to the courts and that the courts would overturn it. But in fact, the judge, who's a Trump appointee and who had earlier ruled that the moratorium, the CDC moratorium extension was unconstitutional, she said this time her hands were tied. And so right now the moratorium goes on. Yeah. So like we talked about last week, Brian, the Trump appointed judge, U.S. District Judge Dabney Friedrich, those are exactly her words, said her hands were tied on the lawsuit that was brought by the realtors in Alabama against the eviction moratorium. And last Friday, she ruled against the realtors' request to freeze the eviction moratorium on an emergency basis. That was the, you know, the ruling that we had been waiting on, that we were waiting to hear about. So just to go back for a minute, and you mentioned this, Brian, Friedrich had initially ruled last year in 2020 that the moratorium was not legal and upper courts ruled against her and reversed her decision. So because of that, and possibly other factors, but you know, I think clearly because her initial decision in 2020 was overruled, this time she ruled against the landlords because you know her decision had already been overturned. So when she got this, you know, this new suit, she said, "Well, you know, my hands are tied here due to these upper court rulings, and I cannot allow this suit to go forward." Even though she said, you know, effectively she didn't like it and she didn't think it was legal. So. So the landlords this time around and these Alabama realtors um, launched this emergency suit to null the eviction moratorium on an emergency basis. And Friedrich last week said, I my hands are tied. I can't do anything about this. So now her ruling has been appealed again and is being heard in the U.S. Court of Appeals. And both sides have asked that the court rule by Thursday, this Thursday. So we should you know, hopefully hear something by the end of the week. This is going to be very, very big news, whether millions of Americans will be able to stay in their homes in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, the fact that this is even being debated is, you know, absolutely outrageous. So we'll be watching closely, as I know many Americans will be, as to whether they'll be able to actually, you know, live in the in the housing that they're living in right now. Um, this will be a, a very big, very meaningful decision. And whatever the outcome, it will likely be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. But, you know, I just want to emphasize, like we did a little bit last week, you know, this is a Trump appointee who's said, well, my hands are tied. I can't do anything about this. I mean, this just, I think, really shows how political judges are and how, you know, the fact that there has already been such a big movement against this, you know, has really put pressure on the legal system and on the court system. Yeah. And that's the most important point. To the extent that time is given to our movement to struggle. And when I say our movement, there are housing groups all over the country who are fighting for, advocating for tenants. As long as the struggle is an unfinished battle, as long as this continues to be an open-ended struggle, as long as the moratorium continues to be extended, it gives the movement an opportunity to fight. Anyway, let's keep going. Esther, you have a number of important stories, including the DHS alert, Tennessee, vaccine mandates, what's on your plate? Right. So just like this housing crisis ongoing and we're continuing to watch this unfolding crisis in Afghanistan, you know, as far as the evacuation. At the same time, on Friday, the Department of Homeland Security issued a national terrorism bulletin warning of a quote unquote heightened threat environment across the United States that is very diverse. They cite threats from racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, what they call anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremists, foreign terrorists and foreign influences and the 20th anniversary of the September 11, 2001 attacks. And I should add that this bulletin was released before this like rapid advance of victories by the Taliban and the fall of Kabul. 
But the bulletin also cites threats from a convergence of forces, like people who still believe what Trump is also still saying, that the election was stolen from him. As a matter of fact, Friday, August 13th, yes, Friday the 13th, was when, according to this far-right conspiracy theory promoted by Mike Lindell of My Pillow, Trump was supposed to be restored to power. And if you think that's crazy, Newsweek reports that one in 10 U.S. voters believe that Trump will be returning to the White House and Biden will be ousted sometime before 2021 ends. And so we could call this the January 6th contingent, right? And then the bulletin says that, quote, threat actors have called for violence against elected officials, political representatives, government facilities, law enforcement, religious communities, or commercial facilities, and perceived ideologically opposed individuals. And then just as officials or groups can be targeted because of this big lie, local school and health officials who try to impose mask mandates around the country for public school students, faculty and staff are also being targeted, even as the Delta variant we know is spreading across the country. So anti-mask demonstrators in Williamson County, Tennessee, were caught on video that has gone viral, threatening medical professionals. Some of these people threatened were doctors and nurses, testifying before the school board on the importance of wearing masks. And the board voted in favor of making masks mandatory. And so the video shows men in this mob following a man to his car and screaming into his car window, we will find you. We know who you are. We know where you live. And last month, a Sarasota, Florida woman had to be kicked off a Delta flight after she refused to wear a mask and spit at passengers saying that they were violating her human rights. So going back to the report, it says, quote, pandemic related stressors have contributed to increased societal strains and tensions, driving several plots by domestic violent extremists, and they may contribute to more violence this year, end quote. And so finally, I just been thinking about just how illogical it is for these far right, you know, pro market capitalists to endorse this kind of behavior as a political move when it hurts many small businesses that are trying to recover, that are hoping to bounce back, and that now face a growing new wave from the Delta variant. So despite that, they're willing to sacrifice not only their constituents, like school children and public school employees, but also small businesses that still believe in capitalism and want to invest in it. Thank you, Esther. Walter, final point, of course, Liberation News newsletter, what's on your agenda? Yeah, please go to liberationnews.org. We'll keep you updated with all the breaking local, national, and international news. And you can click on the link at the top to sign up for our newsletter. One article that I want to highlight today to start off with is about the $3.5 trillion social program expansion. The title, you can find this on the homepage of Liberation News, $3.5 trillion social program expansion set stage for showdown to come. This is about the sweeping progressive reforms that are under consideration, longtime demands of different working class struggles under consideration, but also under serious threat by right-wing members of the Democratic Party, how important it is that we put pressure on those right-wing senators. Another great article that was published over the course of the last week, encourage people to check this out, Cuba's big wins at Olympics due to its revolution. You can learn more about how sport works in socialist Cuba and why that is so different than sports under capitalism. 
And then finally, on that point we were just talking about in terms of the eviction moratorium and this court victory that took some people by surprise, I want to encourage everybody to check out an article titled Federal Judge Bows to Public Pressure upholds eviction moratorium. And of course, we'll also have rolling coverage of the crisis in Afghanistan. Check it out on liberationnews.org. Sign up for a newsletter at the top. Yeah. And another website people should look at in addition to liberationnews.org is go to canceltherents.org, especially if you're looking for activities in your area, advocates for housing, advocates for those who are threatened with eviction, canceltherents.org. That's it for today's show. We'll be back with Richard Wolf tomorrow. We're talking again with him about Marxism and agriculture. We're going to focus tomorrow on industrial farming. And on Thursday, we'll be joined by scholar, author, activist, Gerald Horn. We're going to be talking again about Afghanistan, but putting the events in Afghanistan into a sweeping historical analysis of imperialism for the past four decades. So be sure to join us Thursday for The Real Story with Dr. Gerald Horn. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Brian Becker.